Lord Jesus Christ, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus. We just sang a few stanzas of Psalm 119, celebrating God's faithfulness to his covenant. And that faithfulness has two sides. God is faithful to his promises of salvation. And God is also faithful to his threats of judgment for those who live in and love sin. And we see that happening right here in chapter 18. We see the glory of God's salvation as he sows blessing to the seed of the covenant. And we see God's glory in his righteous judgment upon sin uh, of sinners who are not repentant. And so the chapter begins with Yahweh, the Lord, appearing to Abraham by the oaks of memory. The Lord, all in capital letters, of course, you remember, children, it's the covenant name of God, the God who keeps his promises. Moses is recording this from written and uh, oral sources that have been passed down through the generations. Moses describes it as Yahweh coming. But we know that God usually revealed himself to the patriarchs by the name El Shaddai, the God who can do amazing things, the God who can bring life out of death. So Moses wants to call our attention to the fact that God comes here in his covenant faithfulness. When did God appear to Abraham? Well, it must be very shortly after the events of chapter 17. If you look at 17 verse 21, what did God say? Sarah will bear Isaac to you at this time next year. So 12 months after Genesis 17, Sarah's going to have a son. And now if you look at chapter 18, verse 14, what does God say to Abraham? He says, about this time next year, Sarah will have a son at the appointed time. And that appointed time in verse 14 is the date that he set in chapter 17. So it's very, very soon after the events of chapter 17, very, very soon after Abraham has put the mark of the covenant into his body and the bodies of all the men in his household. And he's by the oaks of memory. Where are they? Well, back in Genesis chapter 13, after Abraham and Lot went their separate ways, Lot went to the east towards the Jordan River Valley at the bottom of where the Dead Sea is now, and it was a lush and verdant valley like the Garden of the Lord, like Eden. It was a great place to be. And then Abraham ended up northwest of that in the area of Hebron. God said to him in chapter 13, God said, walk through the length and the breadth of this land. I'm going to give it all to you. And, and so Abraham settles right by Hebron, which is the geographical center of the promised land, the length and the breadth is all his, and he's just waiting for God to give it to him. So here is Abraham waiting on God's promises, and he's sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the days. He's just had a, perhaps a, a light meal, and he's ready to have a siesta. He's ready to just kind of relax and maybe nod off during the, the hottest part of the day. And then he saw, he lifted up his eyes, Three men were standing in front of him. That's a little strange that that happens. Abraham and his household probably number between one to 2,000 people if you count all of his servants and their children. It's a small town, his settlement. And 
it would be hard for a traveler to just appear right in front of Abraham, who's the chief. He would have met some servant first and would have been perhaps led to Abraham by a servant. Most travelers would have been given hospitality by the staff and sent on their way. But these three men appear right in front of Abraham. They're not brought to him. Abraham perhaps is nodding off and he just kind of opens his eyes and suddenly they're there. Perhaps they just appeared there. And they have the look and carriage of nobility. These are not just some workers that are traveling along the road and stop for some hospitality. These are people who are peers of Abraham, if not something more. And Abraham notices something special about them. And so we see the way he reacts. He runs to meet them. These are people that must be honored. And he pleads with them, if I have found favor, you're doing, you're doing me a favor if you stop for a little water and a morsel of bread. Just a little water and a morsel of bread. He plans a great big banquet, but he's just downplaying it because he doesn't want them to say, oh, don't go through all the trouble. He's the consummate host here. Consummate example of hospitality. He doesn't want to hear a no. And he gets their approval. And look at all the, the rushing around that happens. He ran to meet them, and then he went quickly to Sarah. And he's in such a hurry that he doesn't even use full sentences. He says to Sarah, quick, three seers, three seers of fine flour. There's no verb in that sentence. He just barks out a command. Fine flour, not the regular barley flour, which was the stuff they would eat uh, bread from usually, but fine flour, wheat flour, which was for special occasions and banquets, cost more money. Three seers of it, it's about 20, 22 liters of flour. That's a lot of bread you can make from that, I would imagine. The kind of bread that Sarah would make was a quick-bake flat bread that she would make over the fire. You could do it pretty quickly. Abram's planning a banquet here. This is not just a morsel. Then he runs. He runs to the herd, and he takes a calf, tender and good. He's got to serve veal. That's significant. Abram doesn't own any land. His riches are in his flocks and herds. And if you're going to eat something, even at a special occasion, you would maybe serve a lamb or a goat. The calf, the fatted calf, is for great, solemn, important occasions. It's a noble feast that Abraham is preparing. And he gives the calf carefully selected to the man who prepares it quickly. And then there are curds and, and milk involved as well as he sets it before the men. There in verse 8. The, the curds probably refers to a sour, soft cheese that they made, kind of with the consistency and, and taste of, of unsweetened Greek yogurt. And it could keep in that climate without a fridge if you covered it in olive oil. And so there's a meal served to these three men, perhaps the meat cooked in, in milk, laid out on the flatbread and covered in that sour cheese. I don't know what you call it, a pita, pita, a pita bread or a wrap, something like that. And he stands by them as they eat. He's a solicitous host. He's serving them as they eat. So, so what's happening here? Three men kind of just appear right before his eyes. It doesn't seem like they've walked through the camp. They come out of nowhere. 
then there's all this running. There's these verbs of run here and run there and quick this and quick that and quickly do this. There's the best fine flower that kills the fatted calf. There's a special occasion. What's happening? Well, what's happening is what we read about in Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Just one chapter back, Abraham has marked his body and the body of all the males in his household with the mark of the covenant. The Old Testament version of baptism, the mark of belonging to God. And now God has come to him to have a meal with him, to fellowship with him in his home. And we may think, wow, wouldn't that be awesome if God came to have supper with us? Imagine that. There's a knock on the door and there are two angels. And the Lord himself. As we read through the chapter, we, we, we know that one of these men is the Lord himself, most likely the pre-incarnate Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, because he addresses Abraham as the Lord. And that's why it was right and appropriate for Abraham to run and fall down on his face and bow down to the earth. That's a verb in the Old Testament used for worship. And we may think, well, wouldn't that be awesome if God would come and have a meal with us? But he does, doesn't he? Every time we sit down at the Lord's Supper, he invites us to his table. And every time the family's sitting down to a meal, the Lord is there, isn't he? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. And at every covenant family meal, we eat and drink in the very presence of God. So here is Abraham, he's standing there serving the men. They finish their food and they ask the question, where is Sarah, your wife? Well, how do they know her name? Because it's God himself who is visiting Abraham. And you can see that in verse 10. The Lord, Yahweh, said, I will surely return to you. So there is the Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate form appearing to, to Abraham together with two angels. They have temporary bodies for that appearance. Those bodies will later on just simply disappear. And God speaks to Abraham and says, I will surely return. And he uses a very strong um, way of putting the, the verbs together in the Hebrew language. It's basically a repetition of the verb with the infinitive. So, so literally he says, to return, I shall return. And it's the same kind of structure that the Holy Scripture uses, that God uses when he speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, of every tree in the garden, to eat, you shall eat. In other words, you shall surely eat. It's very emphatic. But if you eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to die, you shall die. You shall surely die. So it's a structure, a way to structure the language which really emphasizes that this is really going to happen. And now he says, I shall surely return. This is going to happen. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now Sarah is behind him. Behind the tent 
door and she's listening to the men's conversation and she hears what he says. Now back in chapter 17, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. And now, just a short time later, he's back having a meal with Abraham and saying the same promise, this time for Sarah's benefit. Sarah hears it from the very mouth of God himself. Now they're both old. Look at verse 11. They're both old. They're advanced in years. Sarah is postmenopausal. That means her body is no longer producing eggs. And that means that it would take a miracle for her to conceive a child. It will have to be God intervening in the ordinary course of things. There's no way that naturally she can have a child. And so Sarah laughs to herself. Verse 12. She laughs to herself, inwardly, in herself. She's not ROTFL like Abraham in chapter 17. And I, I thought that the kids would understand that last week, but my children told me that the older people and the younger people might have to ask the middle-aged people for what that means. I can't keep track of all that. She's not rolling the floor laughing. She's just laughing in herself, a sad laugh. How is this even possible? My body is old and worn out. That hope of having a child is no longer for me. And this is God visiting. So he hears what happens in her heart. Why did Sarah laugh? Verse 13. Why did Sarah say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? God he is the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. And look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the word hard there literally is the word wonderful. Is anything too wonderful? The word wonderful can also be translated miraculous. It's the same word which we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it is used in the glorious titles that are given to the coming Messiah, that he is the wonderful counselor. Is anything too wonderful for God? Is anything too miraculous? Is anything beyond his power? This is a word which is attached to the titles of the one God himself who will be born from a virgin. The greatest miracle in the history of the universe that God was made man, born of the Virgin Mary. And if God is going to do that, then having Isaac born from an old mother is hardly a challenge for him. And so there is Sarah. She's laughing inside herself sadly. There's no hope for me. And God says, really? You think I can't? do the unexpected? You think I can't bring life out of death and joy out of sorrow and light out of darkness? You know, maybe this morning you're here. And when you hear the promises of God, you laugh inside yourself, in your heart. And maybe you say, there's no hope for me. Sin and affliction, whether other people against me or my own sin and affliction has reduced me and there is no happiness possible for me and there is no way out and there is no hope. 
And God comes to you this morning, brother and sister, and he says, I am God, Yahweh, the God who keeps promises. I am God, El Shaddai, the God who can bring life out of death. I am the God who works salvation. I am the God who makes my promises come true. I am the Lord. I am who I am. Is anything too hard, too wonderful, too miraculous for me? God calls her out. He says, Sarah, you don't understand who I am. You don't understand what I do. And when God calls her out, Sarah gets afraid. Look at verse 15. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. She was afraid. It's what happens when God confronts, when God exposes our sin and our unbelief, we get afraid. We're afraid of punishment. Our natural tendency is to defend and to deflect and to deny and to cover up our sin because we're ashamed of it and we're afraid of God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's judgment. But how does God deal with our mother, Sarah, the mother of the church? Look how gentle he is at the end of verse 15. He says, no, but you did laugh. That's it. He doesn't tear into her. He doesn't bring all kinds of judgment and condemnation upon her. He just gently corrects her as a loving father. You did laugh. You know, look at these verses 12, 13, and 15. You see the, the verb laugh, right? Sarah laughed to herself, verse 12. Verse 13, why did Sarah laugh? Verse 15, Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. He said, no, but you did laugh. So there's laugh, laugh, laugh. And, and what they're doing the whole time is they're using versions of Isaac's name. Isaac's name is simply the verb, he laughs. And so the way it sounds in Hebrew is kind of like this. The way it would hit the ear of the Hebrew speaker Roughly like this. So Sarah Isaac to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah Isaac? She denied it, saying, I did not Isaac. He said, no, but you did Isaac. It's all about Isaac's name. It's all about the, the name of the son of the promise. You did Isaac. You did laugh. And you're going to laugh, Sarah. You're going to laugh in about a year's time. Not with disbelief, but with joy. When you hold that little baby in your arms, you're going to laugh. And so in verse 16, the men set out. Abram's with them. And they looked down. So they're up in the area of Hebron. It's high up in the mountains. They kind of look down to the southeast towards the bottom end of the Dead Sea towards Sodom. It's about 30 or 40 kilometers away. From the Oaks of Mamre, it's about three and a half to 4,000 feet down. So they're way up there. I don't know how high the mountains are here in Jasper, but I imagine they're, they're pretty, that three and a half, 4,000 feet is pretty high. And so they're looking down from where they probably had to hike maybe a few kilometers to get there, but then they're looking down to where Sodom is and where Lot lives. And Yahweh says, verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now the scripture says, Amos 3, 7, 
Yahweh God does not do anything without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God brings his word, and the word is the word of promise, of life, of salvation for sinners who repent. And that word comes at the same time with a promise of judgment upon the impenitent. The word cuts two ways. It is a double-edged sword. There is no salvation without judgment. And the problem with the modern church and the problem with fake Christianity is that it tries to take off the one side and just have salvation with no judgment. It doesn't work. If there's no judgment, there's nothing to be saved from. So God warns Nineveh. He sends Jonah later on, to warn Nineveh of coming judgment. Before the flood, he warned the wicked world through Noah, the preacher of righteousness. When God is going to judge the world, he tells the church about it. And there's a similar situation here. There's a wicked, wicked world down there in the valley, the Jordan Valley, in the five cities with Sodom and the other cities. And God reveals to his faithful servant the impending judgment. He doesn't always warn the wicked. He doesn't always warn the ungodly of impending judgment. Sometimes they are swept away in their wickedness with God's just judgment. And part of that judgment is that God doesn't even bring them the gospel. But he always reveals his word of judgment to his people. And so God looks at Abraham and says, this man is the father of the church. He's the father of all believers. He's the father of the Catholic church who's going to come from all nations. I've chosen him. Or literally it says, I have known him. This is God's sovereign electing love that God has put his love upon Abraham to do what? To be what? To be the father of the people of God, to lead his family in the generations in the way of the Lord, in righteousness and in justice, in the obedience of faith and the way of faith. And God says, you know what? That's Abraham's job, him and his children and his children's children to walk in righteousness and in justice. And so I'm going to tell him about what happens to people that don't live that way. Because the threatenings and the judgments of God against sin, he uses to incite in his children a holy terror, a holy fear of sin. That's a good thing to have. That's a good thing to, to have a holy fear of sin and its consequences. And so we have in this chapter the two sides of the covenant. We have sown blessing. It's just in seed form. It's just in promise form. But we have the promise of, of life from death, of, uh, promised laughter. And that's just a little picture of the big one, of a new humanity, a world made new. It's just in seed form here in, in chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18. Just in seed form, but it's pointing to a glorious future, a glorious consummation. All things made new, a new human race, new heavens, a new earth, new bodies, new life. A return to the Garden of Eden, but improved upon to the nth degree. That's all bound up in this blessing which is sown 
to Abraham and Sarah in this chapter. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The blessing of salvation, the promise of salvation and new life is always in the context of judgment. That happened with Noah. His salvation was in the context of judgment for the entire world of sin. When Israel was brought out of Egypt, their salvation was in the context of the judgment of God upon Egypt and the drowning of Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. And the apostle tells us in Romans 5, 9, that we are, having been justified by faith in Christ, have been saved from the wrath of God. There's always that salvation and wrath, salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. Paul describes that as he writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 of his first letter, verse 9. He, he says, you've turned from idols to the living God. You're believers now. And so now you're waiting to come from heaven, the Lord Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These are uncomfortable truths which we tend to want to minimize or just kind of gloss over. But these are important truths to help us understand the glory of the gospel. The gospel is a two-edged sword. It cuts to life. It cuts to death. God is faithful to his promises, not just his promises of blessing, but God is faithful to his promise of curse. And so he's, he's bringing Abraham to have a look down towards Sodom, and he's showing Abraham the importance of living in the obedience of faith. And what happens when people embrace unbelief, sin, and wickedness? They reap the curse. Now, Sodom is not under the Abrahamic covenant. They're not included. But they are under the covenant in Adam and in Noah. They are under that worldwide command to all men, women, and children to the whole human race, to be fruitful, to be multiplying, to fill the earth as holy children of God, as God worshipers, to make all the world a holy of holies. That's what they're supposed to be doing. But look down towards the Sodom, towards Sodom City. It's in the Jordan Valley, which Genesis 13.10 says is well watered like the garden of the Lord. It's like Eden. There's a blessed abundance there's all kinds of temporal blessings and fruitfulness in that area, lots of wealth. And those human beings living in that area are great, vile, wicked sinners. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Genesis 13, 13 says they were wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. And the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 16, tells us about Sodom, what the sin of Sodom was. Their sin, says the prophet, was greed and selfishness, and that they did not aid the poor and needy. They were not hospitable. And to cap it all off, they did abomination, says the prophet Ezekiel. They did abomination. He uses the word that the Levitical law uses to describe the unnatural sin of homosexuality. 
there's a place of greed, of selfishness, of, of oppressing and crushing the poor, the needy, the visitors, the, 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 the travelers that were coming through, ripping them off, stealing from them. It was a place of great sexual perversion. And out of all the sexual perversions, the pinnacle was the unnatural wickedness of homosexual rape against guests in the city. And we'll read about that in the next chapter. We read in some ancient sources, extra-biblical sources, more details about the way that life was in Sodom and the surrounding cities and its stomach-churning the wickedness which they delighted in. And God says, I will go down to see. It reminds us of when he came down to see the Tower of Babel. God doesn't have to come down to see, but it is a coming down, a visitation of judgment. The outcry has come to me, says God in, in verse 21. That means that God hears. God hears not just when his children cry out, but even when unbelievers who are being mistreated and abused and oppressed, when they cry out against injustice, God who is just, God who is righteous, he hears the cry of those who are mistreated and abused, and he acts. And what's about to go down here is a picture of eternal damnation. A picture of what happens when sinners deliberately and stubbornly choose to continue in sin. The Bible says that one who is often rebuked yet hardens his heart will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So we see in chapter 18 this, this great big covenantal divide between, on the one hand, blessings promised to Abraham, which is a picture of heaven, and judgment looming for Sodom, which is a picture of of hell. And if you turn your Bible to Jude chapter 1, verse 7, you'll, you'll see what the Scripture says about that. 1-7 of Jude, that's on page 1027 in your ESV. So Jude says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So once again, the, both the blessings and the curses in this chapter are little pictures of the eternal truths of heaven and hell. So verse 22, the men turned and went towards Sodom. The two angels are heading towards Sodom. But Abram still stood before the Lord. And he knows what's about to happen. How does he react? How does the father of believers react to the knowledge of impending judgment? What if he reacted the way we react? What would he have done? Does Abram say, well, I'm a covenant child. I'm the father of believers. Blessings have been sown, promises have been given, salvation has been guaranteed. I'm going to go back to my tent and enjoy the blessings of the covenant. And thank the Lord that the wicked are going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Nobody does. He doesn't sit there looking in, but he looks out, and it weighs on his heart. The destiny that is in 
and, and, and the, the judgment which is in store for the wicked, and he intercedes and he pleads for mercy. There is Abraham standing before our Lord Jesus Christ before he was incarnate. Abraham mediating with the mediator himself because it weighs on him. Because these people, there may be in Sodom, maybe as many as 10,000 people in the five cities, maybe between 30 to 50,000 people. And these are people made in the image of God. These are human beings. And God is going to sweep them all away in his just, righteous anger. And Abraham pleads for judgment to be tempered with mercy. Notice how he comes to God. He, look at verse 27, I'm dust and ashes. I, I can't demand anything. I can't come in and say, Lord, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that. I have no demands. I just have humble supplication. And six times he asks, two sets of three petitions. And when he starts the second set of three, he, he says, Lord, let not the Lord be angry. But he keeps going. When he gets to the very last, the sixth petition, the sixth request. He's getting down to number 10, and he says, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again about this once. He's afraid even to ask, but he asks. He asks for mercy for the wicked, that there may be a chance for repentance. Brothers and sisters, what do we learn from our father Abraham? Well, we are the community of blessing. The seed of promise was sown in the early chapters of Genesis about 4,000 years ago. And that seed has grown. It has grown into the church Catholic today around the world. There are billions who know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least in some way. Every tribe, tongue, and nation has its believers. Or at least those who have come to know the gospel. We are part of all the nations that are blessed in Abraham. And like Abraham, we live with the, the seed of future blessing, the, the future promise. We live in a perverse and wicked world amongst people who, who, are, who are twisting and perverting the creational gifts to satiate their lusts and, and, and they, they're reaping the curse. And we're waiting for the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. We're waiting for him to come again to judge the living and the dead. We know that he has set a day to judge the world and to bring upon the impenitent and ungodly the righteous judgment and the curse that they deserve. We know that's going to happen. We know it's coming closer every day. And every day we know that our unbelieving family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our colleagues are under the impending doom of the wrath to come. Are we pleading with the Lord? Do we dare to struggle with God in prayer for the life of the unbelievers in our family, in our community? And do we, to, do we dare to do it not just in words, but in acts and deeds? What have we been called to do, brothers and sisters? We haven't been called to sit in our tents, 
comfortably snuggling up to our covenant promises and waiting for salvation. God has called us to action as the church of God. He's put upon us a divine command that our Lord Jesus gave us before he rose from this earth and ascended into heaven. And he told us, he told us, not other people, but he told us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. God calls us to go out into a world under the curse and bring blessing, to go out into a world of death and bring life, to go out into a world of darkness and to bring light. That's why God puts before us also in our chapter this morning his ordained judgment of the wicked, not so that we can say, oh, goody, can't wait till it happens. Not so that we can sit on the mountaintop enjoying the abundant fruit of all the blessings that he has sown. But God teaches us of impending judgment so that we might speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Lord God, I give you humble thanks that you have included us in the blessing of Isaac that you've blessed us with life out of death and that we know the truth and the glory of your salvation, that we experience it far more deeply than Father Abraham ever did. And Lord God, we, we pray for our neighbors. We pray for the world around us that rather than reaping the curse and the wrath and the judgment that their sins deserve, Oh, Lord, we, we long to see them participate in the joy of overflowing blessings from that seed of promise you planted so long ago in Abram's time. And so, oh God, would you draw, as you drew us, would you draw many more from the darkness into your marvelous light and save them from the wrath to come. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.